California uses what's called the MFAC model, which is their climate model, their pollution model. And in that, they do things that are intentionally done to make older vehicles look bad. They make it even worse because they use mean or average instead of median. And the problem with any vehicle model here is that 80% of the cars are pretty clean and 20% are disgustingly dirty. Right. And what happens is those gross polluters, that 20%, skew the average higher. So it misrepresents what the true impact of those vehicles is, because basically you're having 20% of the cars dictate what the emission level is, not the 80% of the cars. Right. The last yeah. one is that every car that's registered, they claim is being driven those X number of miles per year. So, you know, you can own 10 cars, you can only drive one car at a time, but yet they're allocating the full emissions to those other nine cars. Wow. So all of this is done to basically inflate the emission contribution of older vehicles. Hey, welcome to Car Guy Confessions, brought to you by ARP. I'm Jeff Smith. This is my car buddy, Cam Benzi, and car builder, Steve Strope. And we're going to tell you some stories. All right. Welcome to another episode of, of Car Guy Confessions with Jeff Smith. I have my friend Cam Benti here. We have a guest. You can tell this is a little bit different. We're, uh, we're doing this remotely this time to talk with our guest, Frank Bohannon. And uh, because this is so special that we wanted to uh, get this produced as quickly as possible so we could talk about this information and get this out for guys that, that I mean, this impacts our industry. This is something that the federal government is, they're, they're coming after us. I mean, let's just put it out there plain and simple. They're coming after us, the industry um, as a whole. Um, and, and, you know, this is America. There's some freedoms involved with this. And the, and the EPA is just playing a very heavy hand. And so we wanted to get the information out there because um, in, in times of confusion or things like that, you know, truth sometimes is lost in the middle. And, and, and Frank, our, uh, Frank Bohannon, our guest here, uh, has, has some real inf insights into this whole thing. So right. uh, Frank, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself yeah. first to kind of position who you are and, and uh, your- Why do you know anything? Yeah, your skill set. So, <laughs> Well, I guess uh, relative to this subject, um, I started working for SEMA in 1992, and I was a director of technical affairs for seven years. And uh, trade associations have limitations. They can't show favors of one member over another. So I came up with this idea that since I could only tell people, here's the law, now go off and do it on your own, they would say, how come you can't help me? And I'm saying, well, my hands are tied. So I suggested to SEMA that I become an independent consultant and that I do the same job for them. But since I'm no longer an employee, I could do things for other people and namely take them the rest of the way through the process. And that was primarily CARBOs. So I've been working on this subject of emission compliance, CARBOs, EPA, and so on since 1992. And uh, I've just never to jump seen in, carb carbios is basically how a company makes a product legal for use on a, on a on an emission control vehicle. Correct. I mean that's what we would need to probably just qualify. EO. Some people don't know what that is. It's an executive order. But uh, Frank was at the heart of all that when it first came about. Right. And in California, you have to be proactive. You can't even advertise, sell, whatever, anything for an emission related vehicle unless. It has a car BO and is an emission related part, obviously. EPA, things are different, but as I was about to say, you know, in since then, I've never seen it this bad in, in terms of how they're going after people. And they used to go after primarily bigger companies, you know, get the big scalp, get the big reward, you know, the big fine. But now they're going after the little guys. And I'm sure people have seen various videos online about all of that. And their philosophy has kind of changed to, right. you know, instead of taking a long time fighting a big company with lawyers, let's go after the little guys that don't have the resources, that don't have the lawyers, and we'll just knock off a bunch of them instead of going after the big guy and taking months and months to get our reward. 
Yeah, it's amazing because, you know, the rumor mill is, is huge right now. People are talking about, you know, shutting down these companies and these huge fines for simple things that are happening these days. You know, it would seem, you know, somebody's selling certain things and it would seem like it would be a simple deal that that's not really impacting anything. But what's happened is, and again, the rumor mill is scary because now it makes everybody think you can't do anything with an emission control vehicle at all, which as we talk to you, may not be too far off the mark. Well, as we, uh, you know, as uh, has been played up quite a bit lately, you know, when they were going after the big companies, say for example, Harley Davidson, they went after Harley Davidson for 244,000 uh, ignition boxes that they said were illegal. And they ended up finding Harley uh, total was like $15 million. You know, now they're going after a guy in Colorado who sold 37 ECUs, and they're hitting him up for 18 grand minimum. And if you don't pay us within a month, it's $180,000. Now, in a small company, that's devastating. So they're business. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's just huge because that could put him out of business for forever. Oh, easy. And, you know, again, they're, they're relying on the fact that the intimidation factor works in their favor. I mean, they are... I've said this before, they're worse than the mafia. At least the mafia gives you protection. You know, these guys come in and they basically go on a fishing expedition. They say, you know, let me see your books. Let me see what you've got. And then they go through it looking for things that they can hit you with. And the real key is to stay under their radar. It's like, you know, the old thing, how do you avoid dying in a fatal accident? Don't have the accident. And to the extent that you get on these guys' radar, you've already lost. Because just right. dealing with them is going to cost you something, you know, whether it's time, whether it's, you know, the, the lawyer's fees, whatever you want to talk about, you know, once you are in their crosshairs, you've lost something. It's just a matter of how bad at that point. And that's what I'm trying to do now. I did it as a SEMA employee. You're helping people deal with the regulators. Well, now I'm, I'm doing it as an, uh, an independent and I'm helping people by looking at their websites, their catalogs, their ads, their social media, uh, training their staff relative to uh, a tech hotline when somebody calls in because, you know, the regulators will do covert things where they'll call and try to trip you up with a question or something on your hotline. Um, you have a booth at an event, they'll come by and they'll try to see if they can get you to say something you shouldn't say. So all these different things to try and help prevent anybody from being on their radar. And Incredible. If they are on the radar, I can help them get the uh, the damage limited. Um, I had a client this year that they don't make anything. They don't inventory anything. All they do is they take your order online. They forward it to the manufacturer or distributor, and it gets shipped direct. And uh, Carb wanted to hit them up for a million and a half dollars for 1,800 SKUs. And again, wow. they never sold the part. They never touched the part. All they have to rely on is the information from the manufacturer. Right. So the, yeah. excuse me, the million and a half uh, was reduced down to 300,000 and it could have gone down even less had the owner not gotten cold feet and basically said, right. Well, well, it's it's interesting. You know, we talk about the parts and pieces that we have for so long sold. Just you know, we use them, and it's just no big deal. And now what we're finding is that even the mention of certain things will get you on a lawsuit. I mean, and so so what kind of things are people saying on a tech line that gets them in trouble? What what happens there? What uh, what what are the what are the don't dos of of uh, somebody who has a business in terms of how they can avoid getting caught or getting getting flagged because caught flagged they are there is a difference but how can they avoid being flagged well the single most egregious thing you can do and it's a very generic sense is say that something that you're advertising as a race only part off-road use only which i can get into disclaimers later basically disclaimers are more or less worthless i mean they really don't protect you but to the extent that you call up and you say you know, hey, I, I want to buy this this long tube header, which there's no long tube headers that are legal for street use in any really right. late right. cars. And you say, you know, I want to put this on my, uh, you know, 2015 Camaro and da, 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 da. 
And they go along and they say, well, sure, I'll tell you what you need to do to put it on your 2015 street-driven Camaro. At that point, you're dead. Right. You've just applied the use of a racing-only part on a streetcar. Right. And that is the, the nature of the beast. And you know, EPA has gone so far as to try to say that you can't take a car that was ever designed as a streetcar, as a motor vehicle, to be technical about it, and convert it to a race car. That's the nature of SEMA's RPM Act, is right. that EPA has reinterpreted what the law says to try and make that a reality, that you can't ever take a streetcar and make it a race car. What does, now, what in essence, the RPM Act says exactly what? Because I think you've got the clearest definition of it. Yeah, basically what it does is it prohibits EPA from taking that stance. It clarifies that the original intent of the Clean Air Act was to specifically include race cars, as well as motor vehicles, street vehicles that have been converted to race cars. EPA is, is hanging their hat on this language about design and trying to say that the language as it was originally written says that if it was originally designed to be a streetcar, it cannot be a race car. Right. They tried to sneak it into a totally unrelated bill a few years back. It was a greenhouse gas bill having to do with heavy duty vehicles, you know, 18 wheelers. And they tried to sneak in these two sentences that basically would change what the definition of a motor vehicle is to allow them to do this. So when that failed, now they came up with this um, creative interpretation that they're trying to do the same thing. And that's what SEMA is fighting and I, I give them all the credit for doing so. Right. The, the only problem is that there's full-time race cars and there's part-time race cars, you know, the weekend warrior. Right. And to the extent that somebody has a motor vehicle and they drive it to a track like, you know, Button Willow or whatever, and they take off things, they take off the cats, they take off other parts, they race it, and it's legal to do so because it is on a race track, it is not on a public highway. So they race it, and then they put everything back on and drive it back home in a legal configuration. That is not really being given enough attention right. in in this current uh, legislation. That's something that the, the legislation is currently focusing on full-time race cars. We're, we're talking about the, the RPM Act does not go far enough is what you're saying. Okay. Well, I think they're doing it for strategic purposes. You know, they're trying to get something through that uh -huh. is easier to sell. You know, it's easier to sell if you're talking about, you know, strictly race cars as opposed to adding in the part-time stuff. So I understand their point, but in my experience, it's better to tie the regulators' hands as much as possible with the legislation, which tells them what they can and can't do. Right, which then, is what you're saying. You're saying it should, should go broader and do it once, as opposed to try and go back several times and try to force feed the same thing. Yeah, I mean, the way the process works, the legislation gets passed, the legislation then goes to the regulators and they promulgate, they create a regulation based on the legislation. Right. To the extent that the legislation tells them what they can and can't do, that limits what the final regulation says. Mm -hmm. And the approach of keeping the legislation broad so that the regulators can then adapt and interpret is usually a losing game because obviously their goal is to get as much as they want in terms of restrictions. So to the extent that you tie their hands with the legislation, say they must accommodate X, then they have to accommodate X. Whereas if you leave that whole question out of it, then they can structure the regulation in a way that is more onerous than what the original intent was. Right. And unfortunately, you know, even though there is a regulatory process with public hearings and so on and so forth, they are not nearly as bound by such things. I mean, you know, you submit public comments. I've submitted comments both for SEMA and for other companies and so on. And they have to consider them, but they're not forced to implement them unless the legislation compels them to. And so that's yeah. is basically put yeah. as much in the legislation as possible to compel them as opposed to hoping that you'll be able to include it in the regulatory process. It's, it's much like racing, racing rules, right? If you write the rules that are very specific, 
then it forces the sanctioning body, it forces the racers in this case to follow the rules. And in this case, the, the, the government is the regulatory agency and we're forced to follow their rules. Yeah, well, I would basically say that the regulators are very good at being smoky eunuch and finding yeah. ways. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> yes. Finding ways to, uh, to get what they want regardless of what the rules say. Right, right. Especially if the rules are written in such a way that there's a, there's a terminology that's vague, then yeah, it allows that, you to move around it. I mean that completely as a compliment to Smokey's. Uh, oh, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so one of the things I like to do is always assemble an engine with ARP bolts. And it's not just because they're sponsors, but because it really does work. Um, and, and the stuff is fantastic. I never have to worry about it. Steve, you building building cars too. Yeah, uh, actually, it's part of my baseline design plan when I'm building a car that's going to be shown or featured in a magazine. It's part of the plan right. to have that little bit of diamonds all over the engine bay or in the suspension. Yeah. Yeah, the stuff is beautiful. I remember uh, a long time ago, I built the uh, first time I ever touched it, 69Z28. All of the uh, water jacket holes had stripped out, yeah. and I learned about ARP studs. So check them out at arp-bolts.com or check out their catalog. You'll find everything you're looking for. Uh, we'd like to thank one of our uh, main sponsors that's been with us for a long time, Alden American Shocks. They make a coilover shock that is very impressive. Uh, you've had you have them on yeah, your we, Chevelle. Yeah, I got a set on my Chevelle. Yeah. We did a we did a little Jespis Garage video a, and very cool looking. I mean, with a, with yeah. the chrome exterior, yeah, yeah. excellent looking, and you can get them different finishes as well and but single and adjust, double adjustables. The adjustability that's what mm -hmm. I was just going to say is the key ingredient here because you've got something that can be tuned to improve the suspension and ride for that and matter. ride quality and sure. ride height. So. So, uh, very simple. Yeah, you can also adjust the right height. Yeah, yeah exactly. All very good. Any coilover. But yeah. anyway, so go take a look at uh, AldenAmerican.com. And if you use the code uh, CARGUY10, you'll get 10% off. Yeah, that's even better. Even better. Yeah. See, it pays to watch the show. For, for folks who have not been following this, to, to understand, and this is not just, a, you know, people say, well, it's just a California thing or it's just a New York thing or whatever. But the, what we're talking about, the you know, RPM Act, at its essence is a fact that they're saying that all these cars, pretty much 90% of the cars you see at a drag race, uh, I'm talking about like a, a major, major drag race, anything that's not a custom built funny car or a dragster or whatever that wasn't a car originally, they're saying it has to be emission compliant, correct? I mean, is that not what we're saying here? I mean, you know, everything in stock, super stock, you know, any of the other classes, if they started out as a race car, I mean, obviously there were some body and whites that you could get for certain race cars, but you're basically saying all of those cars, let alone what you see at a bracket race, you go to Irwindale, all those cars are virtually, or um, a situation is that the EPA is saying they, they have to meet emissions. Is that an accurate assessment? At, at the risk of oversimplification, if it had a bin, you can't make it a race car. Got it. Got it. Right. If it was a they all did. So you turned a 1993 Camaro into a super stock car. Technically, you can't do that because, the, you know, first thing you're going to do is take off all the emission control devices. And right. the EPA is saying you can't do that. Right. Yeah. And it even yeah. goes. Into, That's what makes this dangerous. Well, yeah. And it even goes into the fact that few people realize this, but everybody talks about off-road use only, racing use only. It really comes down to exempted vehicles. And most people don't realize that vehicles prior to 1966, so 65 and earlier, are not motor vehicles in the emission control sense. So, you know, you have a 1965 Mustang like I do, you can pretty much do whatever you want to it because it's not under the authority of the regulators. Right. But when you start getting into 1966 and later, right. then emission rules apply. And people say, oh, well, you know, I don't have to get my smog checked as long as I'm before 1976. Doesn't matter. 66 through 75 are technically still motor vehicles. They're still pollution controlled. So not that it's likely to happen, but it can happen. And I'm sure on some level it does. You know, if you've got your 1968 GTO and you're driving down the street and you took off that smog pump that came with it in California, technically you're violating the law and they can cite you for it. Right. And that's true. That's true. Even if you do not live in California. Because right. if it came originally factory equipped with it, and it's right. a, it's a fed, these are, we're talking federal laws, not state laws. So even though, even though in the state of Iowa, for example, there are no emission testing, technically you can't modify your car and you could be cited. 
Right. It, it, it's, it's, not, it's unrealistic, but it, but it, it's, it, the potential is still there. Right. It comes down to enforcement. And, you know, with the exception of California, very few states have any form of active enforcement other than maybe a vehicle inspection. Right. So and you know, California has gone so far as every year they train the CHP, the California Highway Patrol. They spend millions of dollars to literally train the CHP what to look for. So if they open up your hood, they have a pretty decent idea of what should and shouldn't be there. So, you know, when they see that uh, that supercharger on your '67 uh, Nova, they know it didn't come that way, and write you up, assuming that the '67 Nova doesn't have the supercharger doesn't have an EO for a '67 Nova. Right, right. But isn't there also a situation that? <clears throat> We know that some of these regulations are just incredible, but you were talking between us earlier about some situation where they perceive how many miles certain vehicles are driven just by virtue of, you know, you could have seven vehicles and they all have this, this mindset that they get X amount of mileage. And so that becomes a pollution center. But I mean, it was, it was kind of a weird discussion that we got into. Can you, can you clarify that for me? That was California. Yeah, that was California, but EPA does a similar thing. It's just California does it more aggressively. And just to, to take a sidebar for a second, California is a state agency. They can go to their attorney general and they can get their attorney general to give them a warrant to go raid somebody and give them the CHP to do it with and so on. It's very easy. It's all in-house. EPA used to have to rely upon going to U.S. Marshals, FBI, whatever. And in the past, they had to make a fairly strong case to get those agencies to give them the resources. Well, last year, EPA got what's called a National Compliance Initiative for Automotive Tampering. And basically what that says is that the U.S. government recognizes that tampering with vehicles, namely deleting emission controls, custom tunes, you know, anything that they perceive as being something that is uh, a defeat device, their terms, uh, right. Right. is now a big problem, big enough to require that on a nationwide basis, they put special emphasis on it, which means now when they go to the FBI or they go to the U.S. Marshals and say, I need people, they go, how many and where? You know, it's not this big wow. thing that we have to prove anymore. But getting back to the story, which really applies to both, the regulators use computer models to determine what the emissions in the air are and what the predictions are going to be for how good or bad they're going to be and what a given... Um, that sounds and, really dangerous. <laughs> oh, well, don't even get me started on computer models. I mean, you know, just... One word, Geigo, garbage in, garbage out. You know, I mean, assumptions that are ridiculous. And since you mentioned that California uses what's called the MFAC model, which is their climate model, their pollution model. And in that, they do things that are intentionally done to make older vehicles look bad. So, for example, they say the, the model includes assumptions. They go back 45 years. And they say a 45-year-old car, and I haven't looked at the exact numbers in a while, but they used to be like around 3,200 miles a year. A 45-year-old a a car is driven 3,200 miles a year. I don't know about you, but not many people I know drive their no. 5-year-old cars 3,200 miles a year. And then a 44-year-old car is driven 3,400 miles a year. A 43-year-old car is driven 38, whatever the numbers are. So wow. it keeps winding wow. up until you get to a current year vehicle was driven like 15,000 miles a year. And so what that does is it basically says, you know, cars, the, all these old cars are now out there being driven all these miles. The second thing they do, is says that they emit at a much higher rate, which is true. They're uncontrolled vehicles. So yes, they emit much higher, but they make it even worse because they use mean or average instead of median. Median is the point where half the cars are, below half the cars are above mean is the average and the problem with any vehicle model here is that 80 percent of the cars are pretty clean and 20 percent are disgustingly dirty right and what happens is those gross polluters that 20 percent skew the average higher so it misrepresents what the true impact 
of those vehicles is because basically you're having 20% of the cars dictate what the emission level is, not the 80% of the cars. Right. The last one is that every car that's registered, they claim is being driven those X number of miles per year. So, you know, you can own 10 cars, you can only drive one car at a time, but yet they're allocating the full emissions to those other nine cars. Wow. So all of this is done to basically inflate the emission contribution of older vehicles. We'd like to introduce you to a new sponsor of ours. This is InTheGarageMedia.com. Some friends of ours that were in the print magazine business before and now started their own books. we got All Chevy Performance, Classic Truck Performance, and Modern Rotting. Yeah, these are awesome books. They've got uh, lots of uh, educational and entertainment things in them, and they're even good enough quality to include Steve Strope quality maybe, vehicles. Maybe. Uh, he's we'll working see if up I'm to allowed it. in there. Right. I don't know. So in the garage media, in the garage media.com. Check them out. Check them out. Get your subscription, sit and read it. And with ARP, it's not just a lot of intake manifolds, uh, studs for heads, right. but they also have a humongous selection of American and metric that we use all throughout the car, even large bolts that we use on the suspension components. Cause you want that same strength, that same durability and reliability, right. plus the beautiful looks. And, and stuff outside the catalog. Right. They have a special order program where if you're if you're a builder and you need some special stuff made, they can do that for you. So it's an amazing, amazing company to work with. So check them out at arp-bolts.com or check out their catalog. You'll find everything you're looking for. A small percentage of the vehicle population in California's got, what, 30-something million vehicles. You know, there's, you know, a few hundred thousand older, you know, truly older cars, that percentage is minuscule, but yet somehow they're responsible for like 15% of the pollution. So says right. California. Wow. So, so the yeah. hot rods, yeah, hot rods to hell thing, you know, that's, you know, we they hate use, all old cars and such. So right, they use the voodoo math to basically make the old cars look much worse than they are. Right. And that, will, that therefore they must be eliminated. Well, Jeff, you're a complete, you're a pollution center, Jeff. Oh boy, yeah. With 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 you know with eight older cars and 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 them them assuming that I'm driving each one of them, you know that number of miles a year, which which I don't even drive one of them that many number of miles a year. So it's it's yeah, it's completely skewed in their favor. Yeah. Well, they, to they make have it to look, run. Yeah, to yeah, make they it have look. to run. They have to run. That's true, which none of them do. So, well, you know, they still have evaporative emissions as long as they still have gas on there. Yes. yes. And, so, and, you know, I'm, I'm guilty of that as charged, you know, so there you go. So, it, yeah, I'm a, yeah, we are, we are probably not necessarily on the green side of things at this household. Yeah. I left I'm California. I had only five. I've got more now, so you know. <laughs> <laughs> what, what do you have for cars, Frank? What do you have these days? Oh, uh, I got everything from a '64 Sport Fury to a 2009 um, uh, uh, Pontiac Solstice GSP. Oh, yeah, those are nice cars. Yeah, those are fun cars. Yeah. yeah. And Jeff's getting his Chevelle back on the road, so uh, we're gonna have to get that smog pump out, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, actually, the the sixty seven Z twenty eight was a California car, and it had an emission. It had a it had a smog pump on it. Right. And, and for the first few years that we drove it out here in nineteen seventy nine through about eighty two eighty three, you know, I had to get it checked every two years. And well, um, the pump on. And and it passed, you know, because the smog pump was still on the car. So nice, nice. Well, yeah. when I moved when I moved from uh, Michigan to California in nineteen ninety two. They were imposing a $400 smog impact fee, which yes. basically was if you bring a car from outside of California into California, you have to pay this impact fee to offset the additional emissions of a federally certified car right. versus California. As, as if paying that $400 is somehow going to help right. the air quality, right? Which, of yeah. course, but now, I, think, I think that was eventually overturned, wasn't it? It didn't. It didn't was. It the, was. And I never had to pay found it. it illegal. Yeah, I, I didn't have to pay it because I found a loophole that the car companies on lower volume models, they can't afford to certify them specifically to California. So right. they have these, they, they were called young build vehicles. They basically are vehicles that are dual certified. They're 50 state cert. And what it amounts to is California allows you to bring in a certain number of federal vehicles 
as long as you sell more super clean vehicles to offset this. So in my case, it was an 87 Mustang GT. So as long as they sold enough, you know, Fiestas or whatever the heck the small car was back then, you know, and as long as they sell enough of those to sure. theoretically offset the increased emissions of the Mustang, you can sell the five liter Mustang, but you can bring the five liter Mustang in without having to do a special cert. So my car had on its emission label, the Vecchi label, vehicle emission control information label under the hood. It said, this car has been certified to US EPA, blah, blah, blah standards and is compliant with California standards. Oh, so and oh. yeah. I basically, you know, protested at the uh, the uh, DMV, and uh, they sent a letter up to Sacramento, and I didn't have to pay the four hundred dollar fee. Oh, there you go. Well, that's good. <laughs> but so, it almost sounds like kind of a, rules against them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's kind of interesting. Does that sounds like a, a pollution credit thing that we see all the time with big companies? You know, they all they get the you know they trade uh, you know pollution credits so that they can continue to operate in the way they have been, right. and they right. just buy it, well, just pay for it. Tesla wouldn't be here if it wasn't for emission credits because the first few years of their existence, the only cash they had coming in beyond you know stock offerings was selling emission credits to all the uh, other car companies. Yeah. They still do, but it's less and less. And now obviously they're making you know lots of cars, so they don't need it as much. But yeah, that those emission credits kept Tesla alive for right. years. Wow. People, people aren't aware of that. People are not aware of those kinds of things that happen. All and, and this and none of this has anything to do with the quality of the air. It's all about just make maneuvering so that they can get what they want. Right. Yeah. Well, again, they, you know, they, they play games with the computer models to say what they want to say. I was involved when I was doing my work with SEMA. I was involved in uh, the smog check program in California. You know, they revise it every so often. And you would see the results of actual measurements versus the results of, um, you know, their models. And their models never, ever, you know, met up with the, uh, the actual results. The re actual results always showed that emissions are worse. But it didn't matter because they're playing a computer game. So they have to, you know, California still has to give EPA permission California has a waiver from EPA. So that doesn't mean that they're totally exempt. It just means that EPA is obligated on some level to let them do things differently. But they still have to submit what's called a SIP, a state implementation plan. So California submits the state implementation plan that's got all these modeled results. And EPA looks at it and says, okay, you meet the number, that's great. Now, if you know, two years later, they actually measure things and they don't meet up with the results. Oh, well, we just have to make the state implementation plan more strict so that we make up for the fact that we didn't meet our, our bogey. It's Despite just the fact their data is completely flawed is what it comes down to. So they didn't meet the number because they, you know, and, and we still take a beating in that regard. And it's really, really sad because, you know, we've loved this hobby for a long, long time. And we hate to see these things become so restrictive. And what it does is it, it causes a, a younger audience to be less interested in it because of the stipulations. They can sit in front of their computer and do stuff on their computer and, and be less regulated, as we know, uh, or they can go build something with their hands and do something with their cars and enjoy that. But then all these stipulations come into the, into the mix. Well, now, you, now you're getting to a much bigger subject of all the misinformation that's out there and all the, right. you know, all the indoctrination and everything that starts at a young age and, and so forth. And it's true. I mean, you know, basically they're, they're planting all these, these lies for years and years and years. And fortunately there are still a lot of people that know the truth and are willing to seek the truth. And, you know, for example, electric vehicles, they call them zero emission vehicles. There's no such thing as a zero emissions vehicle. Right. I mean, at best, it's a remote emissions vehicle because the electricity is created somewhere and that electricity at this point in this country is most likely uh, being created by a fossil fuel. France, for example, 75% of their electricity is, is created by nuclear. Well, right. you know, the nuclear stuff is, is off the table for the same reason that it's deemed as being you know, so dangerous and bad when in reality, it's the only source that doesn't emit carbon that is capable of supplying right. the amount of 
the electricity we're going to need in the future. So Bill Gates is now involved in a, a company called Trillium that supposedly has a, a new nuclear technology that, you know, maybe they'll start bringing nukes back and that'll be the way that they solve this, you know, yeah. massive increase in demand that's going to come if, in fact, electric vehicles do become as dominant or even partially as dominant as they say they will. Right, right. Well, we'll see. They're forcing it down our throats. And that's obviously, I mean, we did a, a piece on, you know, how, you know, how fun they are in terms of acceleration and such. And that, there's that end of it. And they do have amazing acceleration. But as Steve Strope would say, if he were here, that there's just no visceral connection there. There's no, there's no impact with the electric vehicles that comes from a, a sound of a, of a cool exhaust or any of the other things that are involved with, with acceleration that sucked us in when we were kids. And continue to feed right. that so, fire so, every so day. And beyond that, well, let me make one point about let me make one point about EVs. The other thing is beyond the visceral connection, they just have some practical problems that have not yet been solved. You know, you fill up your gas tank; it takes a couple minutes. You know, to fill up an EV, so to speak, you know, you're talking twenty minutes, a half hour at best, and yeah. a lot longer depending upon what your charging scenario is. You know, also, if you're outside of your house, then you've got to wait in line to get charged. You know, don't get me wrong, EVs have, you know, a place in dense urban areas on corporate campuses and so on, where you can have a lot of charging stations, where you can have the cars charged overnight easily and so on. Right. But, you know, they're, they're never going to be 100%. It's just not going to happen. No. Yeah. No. So, hey, Frank, is is there a, a thing that an individual could do? A lot of this discussion has been the impact that the EPA is having on small businesses that, that sell in the performance industry. Is there anything an individual could do to help this whole situation? Well, I mean, first of all, support the RPM Act. So, so what SEMA tells you to do as far as, uh, you know, writing your congressman, et cetera, and so on, do all of that stuff. But again, what I said before is if you're in the business, the best thing you can do is stay under the radar. Now, that doesn't mean be non-compliant. That just means don't be sloppy. And as an example, you may advertise a product as being you know, a racing use only product, and you may do everything you can to ensure that's the case. You, know, you don't put it on a car that comes in with a license plate. You don't put it on uh, something that you know is being driven on the street, et cetera, and so on. But in your advertising, you can't say, oh, and this also, you know, gets great gas mileage on the street, or it makes low-end torque, so it's good on the street. You can't try to say it's a racing-only part, and then somewhere else in the text say it's good on the street. You can never, ever imply that a competition, race, motorsport, off-road, whatever words you want to use, part is suitable for street use. And that's the biggest crime that most people do. And when I help people, that's what I do is I go through literally their entire website and whatever else they want me to go through. And I tell them, you know, this needs to change, this needs to change, this needs to change, this needs to change. And they have no clue because in some cases it's language that was supplied by the part manufacturer. So they're just, you know, cutting and pasting it basically. And Again, you know, with the uh, the tech line and the people at events and so forth, they've got to be careful with what they say. And that's what I do. I mean, I, I basically educate them on how to not trip over themselves with words that are going to you know, be a red flag to the EPA. And it doesn't really matter whether you're compliant or not, because a lot of people who are compliant are still getting targeted because they're doing something like that. Right. which implies that you're saying one thing and doing another, even if they're not. So perception right. is reality to the EPA. Right. You know, if you say that this car, this thing can be used on a streetcar, even if you've never sold it for use on a streetcar, they're going to come knock on your door and ask you to prove it because with regulators, you're guilty until proven innocent. Right. So, you know, it, it's really prevention is worth more than a pound of cure. I mean, prevention is really... The thing that you've got to do because well, like i, I said before right. if, if they on your door you've already lost right well the tech line situation is a common one i used to do when i worked with the competition cams guys i used to call in and talk to the tech line guys just to hear what they were talking about different things and the friendly nature of what happens on a tech line 
or you start talking with somebody and you get going um, is really a detriment in this scenario because they start saying things. If you bait them, if you say, hey, you know, I've got a 95 Camaro or whatever I've got, and, um, you know, I'd like to put this on my car and the guy doesn't come out with the right information, you know, that alone can be the trip up that happens there. And that's that, like I say, the friendly conversation that happens among car folks who are talking about different things. So that, that becomes a, a major problem. What's, what's the name of your company there, there, Frank? So we can definitely get you, get you into this system here. I mean, you've got an amazing history and what you're doing is extremely helpful for a lot of folks. I appreciate that. The name of my company is Green Speed, one word, capital G, capital S, automotive. I don't have a website. I, you know, I've got more than enough business just on word of mouth. So I never put up a, a website per se. But, uh, you know, my email is greenspeed, all one word, FJB. So it's greenspeed, FJB, all together at yahoo.com. Okay. That's how to get a hold of me. And, uh, you know, my phone is 714 585. Three one two nine. That's and, that's a California number. What the heck? Well, I lived there for two years. Yeah. It's a it's a holdover, right? Yeah. I wasn't going to do that from Michigan. <laughs> well, some do. I lived in California for twenty two years, and it yeah. was great when I got there. But I couldn't wait to leave, unfortunately, because of all this nonsense. Understand? Yeah. Well, you're, Go ahead. Go ahead so, it, it, so I think I think this this kind of just puts this all in perspective for a lot of people, and that uh, this is serious stuff. Um, this is not something that's going to go away. And even with the R, even if the implementation of the RPM Act, which my understanding is it has not yet been implemented, correct? Right. It's still going through Congress. Right. So and, you know there are no guarantees. I mean, right. You know, but even with this, this is not going to go away. This is still something that's going to continue, even oh, no. if the RPM Act is implemented. Well, beyond the fact that it's a great revenue generator for them, you got to remember, as as I used to say in the Blues Brothers, you know, they're on a mission from God, and right. to them, there's there's no reason why anybody should want to modify their vehicle. They believe that you know the OEMs are doing what they can to solve the problem that they perceive and that anybody who modifies their vehicle is just messing it up. I remember in 1995, I was at a, a hearing where we were uh, fighting a, a bill in California where if you make a kit car, especially constructed vehicle, as they call it, right. they want to require that that vehicle can have an engine no more than five years old. So here it is, 1995, you're building a Cobra kit car, Cobra replica. Right. They don't want you to put that 427 side oiler in it. They want you to put in a five-liter fuel-injected Mustang engine. Well, maybe you do, maybe you don't. But the point is, they, they wanted to force you to do it. And luckily, we were able to get it defeated. Uh, we did some political gamesmanship, got CHP involved in a jurisdictional dispute, and basically got, got the thing dropped. But I remember somebody from the Bureau of Automotive Repair coming up to me afterwards and saying, you know, it is socially irresponsible for you to want to put that old dirty engine in a car that you're building now. So they, you know, they don't get it. To them, yeah. anything with an engine is bad. You know, we all should be walking, jogging, riding a bike, or at worst in an EV. Anything that burns anything to them is, is criminal. And they're doing to make it better. And as we were saying, Jeff brought it up last night, talking about uh, some of the things we've been uh, discussing, is that development of internal combustion engines has ceased amongst among the uh, manufacturers. It's no longer, you know, as they kept doing, trying to become cleaner and more efficient and, you know, mileage and the whole bit, it has been a, a total shift to the electric mandate uh, and you know hybrids were in there for a while, and they're still they still work really well. I have some personal experience there, but the focus has been to move away from internal combustion engines. Well, it's in some in, in some companies, but not at all. Toyota, they, Mazda, for example, they still believe in hydrogen and not just the fuel cells. They also believe in hydrogen as in burning hydrogen right. in internal combustion engine. Right, because the only uh, output you get is water, you know, I mean, basically 
um, yeah, there's a, a minuscule trace of, you know, hydrocarbons from whatever oil manages to get past the rings, et cetera. But you can burn internal combustion engines on hydrogen and you can make hydrogen from electricity. So, you know, you put up some nuke plants and you start using some of that electricity to create hydrogen. You still have the problem of distributing it. You still have the problem of storing it on the car, which is not the most efficient thing. But again, you know, right. they've got 10,000 PSI tanks now, whereas before sure. the most you could get was like 2,000, 5,000. So you, I, I drove a BMW God, 15 years ago that was running on hydrogen. Problem was it wasn't direct injected. So injecting the hydrogen displaced air, which in essence made the engine smaller. It was low on power. Well, now you've got direct right. injection. So you don't have to give up that air, that volumetric right. efficiency. So okay. you know, these other country companies are looking at hydrogen. Toyota even raced a hydrogen powered Corolla in right. a 24 hour endurance race in Japan. And um, really? then there's, there's e-fuels, you know, fuels that are made from various sources, Porsche, BMW, Audi are looking at these. And they're basically saying, because of the sources that we're using to make these fuels, these liquid fuels, they are carbon neutral. So, you know, again, going back to some of the voodoo math and so on, <laughs> to the extent that the, uh, the rules have been structured in a certain way, it allows them to say, we can run on this liquid fuel. And when you add everything up, we're carbon neutral. So if you've got hydrogen for fuel cells, hydrogen for internal combustion engines, and e-fuels, synthetic fuels that are carbon neutral, you know, they're, they're going to eat into how dominant EVs are. And then you throw in the other things that I mentioned about, you know, how long it takes to refuel, range anxiety, and you start looking at, you know, the well-to-wheel, well-to-grave emissions. Right. It takes a lot of energy and a lot of uh, stuff to make a battery. And, you know, little uh, little kids in China, you know, uh, taking uh, lithium out of the earth isn't exactly a clean process. So there's a lot of things that have been more or less uh, suppressed relative to EVs. I mean, you talk to so many people, oh, we're going to be all EVs by 2035. No, you're not. No, and, no that'll never happen. You know, first right. of all, the thing in California is uh, an executive order. It's not legislation. Right. So whether, or not, ever, yeah. you know, yeah. whether or not that ever gets implemented is another story. Yeah, so there's a lot of things that are going to, you know, minimize the impact of EVs. Yeah, by 2030, maybe you'll have 20, 25%. I don't know. If I had a fortune teller, if I was a fortune teller, I'd be rich. But, you know, to the extent that there's going to be some great increase in the number of EVs, yeah, bank on that. Right. But it's not going to be 100% by any means, at least not in my lifetime. Yeah. yeah, I'm I'm not a spring chicken, but I'm not that old either. Yeah. You know, so uh, I wouldn't count on EVs replacing anything anytime soon. They will be dominant in dense urban environments. They will be dominant. You know, you can't find a better use than a bus or a trash hauler or right. a delivery right. vehicle, UPS, right. yeah. stop, start, stop, stop. They have their That's places, what, yeah. yeah. I did some great. work with uh, school buses. I did some work with some school bus development and they are the perfect deal because they even have a middle of the day time when they could even be, you know, flash charged if they needed to be. But right. most of the most of the school buses are just the perfect setup. I am not anti-EV by any stretch of the imagination. Oh. I just recognize their limitations right. and they are very good at certain things. They're not good at everything. Right. Right. Our, our orientation is that, you know, EVs are are fine and uh, that's all that's all fine, but to the exclusion of the internal combustion engine or making it the satanic thing that everybody seems to be to be doing to it is is unfair. So yeah. I guess that's where we get our backs up. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, well, I mean, a long time ago, it got to the point where relative to the emissions that are being measured, you know, hydrocarbons, NOx, CO, you literally have vehicles now that what's coming out of the tailpipe has fewer of those emissions than what is going in. Now you get into the thing about greenhouse gases and climate uh, change and so on. And let's just say that you heard my, my story about computer models before. I'll just add one little thing, you know, relative to 
the whole climate change, which, you know, I'll probably get all kinds of hate mail, but, you know, so <laughs> you put your phone number out, you're in trouble. <laughs> I, but, uh, you know, let's look, look at this way. I would feel a lot better about computer model predictions if when they use the same algorithms, the same assumptions to predict the weather next week, and they can't get that right with any high degree of certainty sure sure they can't tell me what's going to happen next week using the same and i know weather is not climate but a lot of the things that are used in the climate models are the same as what's used in the weather models the algorithms the assumptions if they can't get it right next week i sure am not very confident about them getting it right 50 years from now right so right. that's yeah. my yeah. good point you know, it's a very and, good point. And I won't even get into the natural versus man-made and all that kind of stuff. Right, right. Very good. Well, I think I think the, the message here is is that we need to pay more attention to what's going on, and and you know, I, I guess the, for hopefully some small manufacturers, small companies may be in contact with you to see how they can protect themselves. So we'll make sure and post all your information at the end of this thing. But uh, thank you for helping us out with this. This has been very enlightening. Great. And uh, uh, it's, it's a, it's, you know, I mean, this is all about knowledge is power, right? You know, if we, if we know more about what's happening, you have a better way to figure out a way to protect ourselves and, and to continue our hobby, because that's really what this is all about. So, and, and speaking of hobbies, I didn't do this very well. I want to make sure to give a shout out to our friends at ARP-Bolts.com. That's how you can in contact them. They are our main manu or our main uh, uh, sponsor on this show, and and they help us out a lot. And and not to mention the fact that it's absolutely a fantastic product, and the guys there are just wonderful to work with. And uh, I, I was talking to their general manager the other night, and he was telling him that they're going flat out. They can't they can't build their stuff fast enough because the demand is so yeah, great. So, yeah, they, they, yeah. They, uh, I was uh, I was blowing head gaskets on my HHR because I'm running 27 psi of boost. <laughs> their head studs in and uh now i actually am not having that problem torque to, yield, torque to yield bolts and high boots do not mix that's that's not a good combination no it's not so all right well thanks again frank for all your help and um if you if uh, our readers out there and our viewers like what we're doing uh, continue to follow us along as we're going to keep on on these subjects and other things and keep you informed of what, what's going on Sounds great. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.